0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents, She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi there, I'm Lale Arakoglu,
1: and welcome to a new episode of Women Who Travel, where we're taking a deep dive into the many ways to experience and eat Latin American food, from markets and indigenous recipes to family cooking.
2: The way I perceive Latin American foodways as a whole is like a quilt. And each country represents a very colorful patch. And the ingredients are the thread that connect them all together. And they together make the quilt. I didn't want to talk to chefs. I didn't want to talk to people who just cooked for entertainment. I wanted people to, to tell me exactly what they made for dinner when they got home.
1: That's Sandra Gutierrez a food historian who's written four books mastering the art of Latin American cuisine.
2: I grew up in Guatemala. I was born in Philadelphia. My parents were both Guatemalan, my dad a surgeon, my mother an economist, and they decided to go back to Guatemala to, you know, go back home. So I was five when I moved to Guatemala. My home food was extremely international. My mother had been raised in Europe throughout different countries in Europe my father, Guatemalan. And my grandmother was a socialite in Guatemala. I say she was the Martha Stewart of the 40s, 50s and 60s in Guatemala. I mean, she was amazing.
1: What a fabulous description.
2: (laughs) I can't, I can't tell you anything different. She would set the most majestic tables with flowers that she picked in her estate, you know, and she grew fruits and she had a vegetable garden and she uh, raised chickens and it was just amazing. But she was a socialite. So People would always come to her house on Sundays. We were always there on the weekends. And I was a very shy child. And I would have to, as any Latin American child normally is taught to do, I would have to go into the living room where all the guests were. There could be eight people. There could be 48 people. You never knew. And so I would say hello to everybody. And then I would run away into the kitchen and I would hide there. And I was five, six years old when um, her staff there would say, you can hide here, but only if you do something. And so they started teaching me how to cook when I was really, really little. And my first task was, I remember, cleaning beans, you know, cleaning them up because they would have little stones or pebbles and making sure that the beans were clean. And the next thing that they taught me how to do were tortillas and mini tortillas because my hands were tiny. So I could actually pat my tortillas and make miniature ones for them to serve as appetizers. I think my favorite memory is being a six-year-old child and a nanny took me to the market while my parents were shopping. And I, of course, wanted to go see food. And so she and I went to the market and we bought our first, my first taste of Mexican chilaquiles. And this lady was just cooking her chilaquiles in really rackety, tools and, and with different sauces and everything. And I remember saying, how do you make this? And she actually invited me to stand next to her and see how she made the chilaquiles. And I'm telling you, as a six-year-old, I was hooked. All I wanted was to know what was in the sauces, how she made them, why some were harder than others, why some were uh, cooked with enough sauce to make them stuff like pasta, and others were left crunchy where the sauce was just topped on top of the cooked um, fried chips so that they remain crunchy. Um, it was immediate for me. It's always been something that I've had the curiosity and not afraid of tasting absolutely anything. I will taste anything once.
1: The sweeping scope of Sandra's newest book, Latinismo, shares dishes from Mexico to Argentina. It's also a celebration of 21 countries and how their cooking differs and intersects. It's truly about food as a pathway.
2: I've had this book in my soul for decades. But when I presented this book to my agent, she said, they're not ready yet. The world isn't ready for this yet. Because I didn't want to cook food that was esoteric or what people would call exotic. And I hate the word exotic. Me too. Because I don't think anything is. But uh, that was what Latin American food was considered. What I term the National Geographic syndrome, because National Geographic exposed people to Latin America in a way that people think that we're all very retrograded natives, not uh, sophisticated people with sophisticated cultures. And I come from the culture that we know for a fact that the world owes to us the number zero, the 365-day calendar, that we have all of these advances and so many ingredients that are pivotal to the way the food is cooked all over the world today, like tomatoes and potatoes and corn and et cetera. And I just thought this book needs to be made. The National Geographic Syndrome has presented this very like Tarzan-like mentality about Latin American cultures that has permeated and has stayed that way for generations. And that is what I'm trying to break. Centuries have gone by. All these changes have happened. Really exciting food is there. And you walk in through the doorway of Mexican cuisine, which is the one we're most familiar with, and you enter into this house where there are other... 20 other cuisines, other kitchens in there, and all of them are as exciting, as vibrant, as delicious, interesting, fun, and easy to make. They're not difficult to make, especially when you're talking about home cooking. Some of those recipes are based upon recipes that were original to the Americas before the colonial conquering of the the Europeans. But some of them were born after the colonization with the new global exchange of recipes when rice and cilantro and onions and limes and chicken and uh, beef and pork all came to this continent. They were non-existent here and Latin American cuisine wouldn't be what it is today without those. And yet some of those have been transformed even more by the group of immigrants that as they were going into the U.S. through Ellis Island, we're also coming in larger numbers into Latin America. And I wanted to present that.
1: What's your definition of Latin America?
2: Latin America to me are the countries from Mexico the way down to Brazil that share the same territory. So Mesoamerica, which includes Mexico, Central America, South America, and the Latin Caribbean. I did not include uh, some of the outlying island countries because they do not consider themselves Latinos. They consider themselves Caribbean or Afro-Caribbean. Just out of interest, um, what are those particular countries? Uh, You have Suriname, you have Guyana, you have Haiti, you have other countries around that normally lumped together into Latin America, but they don't consider themselves Latin.
1: And so you have this vast amount of land and cuisine and culture to cover and such a huge range of cuisines. Was it daunting? How did you even start?
2: It's 21 countries, so definitely each one has its own flavor and they're so different from each other. So it's been 30 years of researching and really diving deeply into each cuisine and getting to know people and cooking the food. So when it came time to put the project together, it was only a matter of seeing how we were going to divide the book, and that would decide the kind of recipes that I would include in the book. So I started with a recipe list of 9,000 recipes. And of course, you can never write a book with 9,000 recipes. And we decided to do it by ingredient.
1: You know, you'd been sitting on these 9,000 recipes, which is an almost like inconceivable number. How had you gathered them over time and how much had come out of your own travels throughout Latin America?
2: Well, I lived 13 years in Latin America in my formative years and I traveled widely. And I was not the kind of um, young person who traveled and took photos with their photograph. I traveled with a notebook and talked to people about food and got recipes from chefs and cooks and my parents' friends and the people that I met in the bus stop and so on and so forth. And I've continued to be that way. My notebook travels with me wherever I go. I have boxes and boxes full of notes extensively. And I, whenever I visit a country. I, of course, go to the museums and everything, but I always dedicate most of my time to going to supermarkets, grocery stores in all sorts of neighborhoods, and farmer's markets to see what the people are eating and cooking with today. Then I go and I spend a long time in their library. just your public libraries and I go back and I investigate as many of the books and manuscripts as they have from old recipes. I also have a lot of food historian friends who have made a lot of connections for me with other historians. For me, it has just been a multi-pronged way of, I would say it's like one of those pasta spoons that you dip into a a pot of pasta and you pull up all these strands. You mentioned chatting to people at bus stops. Mm -hmm.
1: Is that the kind of traveler you are? Are you always
2: asking questions? I'm always asking questions to the point where my husband says, "I'm going to the beach" or "I'm going somewhere else" because he's like <laughs> nervous that I'm just going to stop whoever's on the street and ask them he's for like, recipes. Oh my god, she's
1: talking to another stranger. Yeah,
2: what are you having for dinner tonight, and <laughs> how do you make it? Because cuisine keeps changing and it keeps going into more and more practical ways of cooking for the modern cook today, just as it has in every other country in the world.
1: Next up, food shopping in Mexico City. Cartagena, and Lima.
0: Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned, just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far-off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% Clearly, you were getting to do so much of it when you would go to these markets growing
2: up. Well, the first thing is when you go to the Latin American markets, you get to taste a lot of things. So you develop that taste for freshness and for seasonality uh, when you're at markets. Uh, Then the food that is sold, prepared at the market, they're usually cooking it right there. And it's food that people will sit and eat in a little table or just pick up and walk with it, like empanadas, because you could carry it with you and keep on walking while you were eating it and tasting it.
1: I have done some travel around Latin America, spent a lot of time in Mexico, I've been to Peru, I've been to Colombia, I've been to Chile. Markets are like, I feel like are a really important part of getting to know some of these places, and particularly the cities. Like, Mexico City, you can't go to and not go to as many Mercados as possible. Beyond Guatemala, which are a couple of standout countries for you, or cities where the markets really feel like something to explore.
2: Lima, Peru would be one. Uh, you go to Lima and they have several markets, but you have those that, they have the specialty of ceviches, they have those where you will find more Chinese and Cantonese ingredients. Uh, it's fascinating. Another place that I have loved visiting and visiting the markets is uh, Colombia. In particular, Cartagena has been a favorite city of mine to go because, again, there's a lot of Afro-Caribbean influence in that part of Colombia. But you also have um, a lot of Spanish influence and you have a lot of British influence also that came with the pirates and all the history. It's fascinating, really. So I would say any city in Latin America that you can go, particularly on a shopping day, a market day, Guatemala Saturdays are a huge market day, for instance. And when you see people, what they're putting in their baskets or what they're holding in their hands, that's when you can walk to them and say, what is that? And what are you making with that? And Latin American people are so nice and so friendly and they love to talk about food.
1: We're both writers and curious and nosy so i feel like it feels quite easy to go up to someone and ask some random question out of the blue but for regular travelers i do feel like go and ask someone what they're eating or what what they're buying at least in my experience um in the countries i've been to everyone just wants to chat and also share like share food
2: Yes, people love to talk about what they, if you think of a party where you don't know anybody, a great icebreaker is to ask them, hey, do you like to cook or what do you like to eat or what's your favorite thing on this table? And and they'll just start talking and, and it's a great icebreaker. It's the same way of breaking ice or of bridging cultures, I think. I even do that here in the States. We have a great Korean store here in my neighborhood. And I will go in there and most of the products are in Korean. I don't know what they are. And so I'll stop people and say, excuse me, what do you use this for? You would see the amount of food recipes, blogs, YouTube, things that people have sent me to so I can learn how to cook with the ingredient that I end up buying.
1: When you mentioned Lima and mentioned Cartagena, you also noted the influences of Chinese immigration on Peru um, in some of the food that you can encounter there, and then also of British colonization. How did you begin to tackle that history and particularly the colonial history in Latin America, which has really shaped a lot of what the cuisine looks like today based on the ingredients that suddenly arrived?
2: The colonization of America shaped the whole world. That is one way in which I've taught cooking now for 30 years is talking about colonization and teaching people. You know, you realize that when the Spaniards and the Portuguese left their boats, they had no idea what was edible. They had never seen the plants, the animals. They had no food in their ships anymore. They didn't know if something they were going to eat was going to be their death sentence because they didn't know it was poisonous and not. And they depended on the native people and the indigenous people of the Americas to survive. So there's also a sweet side to colonization. It's not all bad, uh, and I try to find that silver lining in history. It's very important to me.
1: I was going to ask that because it's it's it feels like it's a such a hard thing to sort of tackle in a po- in a positive light. You know, these settlers arrived, and there was already cuisine there, and there was already culture, m- much culture and many ingredients. And I mean, you can't change history. So it's how do you? both embrace the additional vibrancy and evolution of, of food in Latin America and then also acknowledge
2: what was lost. And, and the sadness and the, and the pain. What I do is I, I speak about history in a very logical, straightforward way. I don't try to rewrite it. I tell it like it was. We cannot change it. We were not there. So we are not responsible for the choices that people made, for the bad decisions, the evil that other people centuries ago committed. I refuse to be guilty for things that I haven't done. I have enough with my own sins, you know, but that's the, the difficult part is telling history as it happened. For me, the good that happened was food. It is the, the one way we can find the sweetness in a very painful and bitter history. And it's still evolving and food will never never stop fluxing in the world. It's still changing today as people move from place to place. Colonization has always been the means by which foodways have come together and combined and have produced what we're eating in each country today.
1: Are there any indigenous ingredients or recipes that have remained that um, you were particularly excited to work with?
2: Yes, I think the basic indigenous recipe are molis. And not mole the way we know it today, but molis, M-O-L-L-I-S, which means mixture. And that's mostly in the uh, Mesoamerican area of Mexico and Central America. They were mixtures of tomatoes, of herbs, but not cilantro because we didn't have cilantro. We didn't have onions. We didn't have garlic. So they used Different tomatoes and herbs and chiles, and that was the sauce that they used to flavor their duck. Their tamales made with masa, with nixtamalized corn, uh, with perhaps reptile meat or venison or rabbit things that they had in this territory. The molis were great. So one of them is of course guacamole. Guacamole comes from the word aguacate, which comes from the word, Nahuatl word, which is a word, a word in Mexico, original um, Mexican language that meant testicle, avocado. And because they hang like testicles on a tree in pairs, that's what they look like for people who don't know. And avocado became avocado moli," a mixture of avocado. And that changed to guacamole. Or guacamole in Mexico. And once it went down into Central America, that was changed and married into the Mayan language and became guacamole. But once you cross over into South America, the word is now a different language It's in the Quechua language and the Palta language of South America. And therefore they call avocados palta. So if you go to Peru, you will have a palta rellena, which is simply a stuffed avocado, aguacate.
1: You know, you just think of people in restaurants all over the world dipping their chips in it and not thinking about the thousands and thousands of years of history they're eating in that moment.
2: Exactly. And the importance of the avocado in in Latin history. At the beginning, it was a source of protein, a source of healthy fat. You know, before uh, there wasn't any butter, there wasn't anything like that. It was a great source of, of vitamins. But also what I find fascinating is people eating food today that, has gone through so much transformation, but the roots are still in the Americas. You wouldn't have pizza with tomato sauce without the Americas. Curry. You wouldn't have your chili peppers in Indian curries without the chiles of the Americas. Polenta without corn. And we can go on and on and on. Chocolate. Can you imagine Switzerland without chocolate? Europe without chocolate? One of my most favorite ingredients to showcase, in both in classes, in lectures and in my book, is a chiote, or anato seed. It's known by very many different names, but that is a, a seed from the Bija Orellana plant, and that is a seed that colors food, an ochre, orangey, golden color. And I tell everybody around the world, if you've ever eaten orange cheddar cheese, you've been eating a chiote your whole life, because it is the coloring that gives. Cheddar, it's orange color.
1: Sandra introduces her chapter on corn by saying she dedicates her own garden to growing milpa. Beans, squash, and corn. They were known as the three sisters. After the break, there's another story she touches on. The Men of Maize. Life doesn't come with an instruction manual. But the Life Kit podcast gets you pretty close. Whether we're helping you tackle life-altering questions or just your everyday pickles, we've got deeply human solutions to your deeply human problems.
0: Listen now to the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.
1: At eBay, you'll always get that feel of real because your fashion purchase will be backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Whether it's an it bag, a must-have watch, dreamy jewelry, or fire sneakers and fresh streetwear, every step will feel authentic, every flex will feel real. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. Visit eBay.com for terms. in the book about the men of maize. Yes. Um, tell me a little bit about that.
2: The story is from the old religious, if you will, a tradition of um, where, where we came from. It's called the Popol Vuh and it's from Guatemala and it's a Mayan story. And the story goes like this. The gods wanted to create men to adore them. They created the first men of clay. And They fell apart with the rain. They didn't withstand any of the rain, so that was a disaster. Then they created them from wood, but the men from wood were very hard. Their hearts were hard and they were very mean, so they destroyed them. And then they decide to create men from maize, or hombres de maiz, and they create a man made of corn. And that man was so uh, sapient and so wonderful that they had to reduce the power of the men so he wouldn't equal the power of the gods. But then they saw he was lonely. So he was made of yellow corn. So out of white corn, they created the female, the woman. And from there on is the creation story of the Mayan civilization, Hombres de Maíz. It's a really fascinating way of seeing it. The actual manuscript wasn't discovered until the 1500s because it was an oral history that was passed. And when the Spaniards came, and they came here for gold, for sugar, for riches, but their excuse was also to uh, convert the world to Catholicism, which w- which was uh, Isabella's and uh, the Queen Isabella's mission, and they destroyed all of that history so that the manuscript the original one that was found was in the 1500s but the history had been told orally for centuries and centuries and centuries and it has survived kids read that book in school now and they study it
1: you use the word uh nixtamalized a few times could you just explain what that is
2: Nixtamalization is the process that was discovered by both Mayans and Incas, but that actually where the indigenous people of the Americas discovered that they had to soak corn in lye or cal, which we call, which is calcium hydroxide, in order to remove the outer kernel of the corn that stopped niacin and nutrients from going into the body. That's how advanced these civilizations were. And so the lack of nixtamalization caused Europeans when they took corn back to Europe to get sick with a disease called pellagra because they couldn't absorb the niacin in the corn or the protein in the corn, and they were getting very, very sick. That is why to this day, most Europeans consider corn food or fodder for animals only. So nixtamalization came to be very important, but it's through the process of nixtamalization that you make masa. And masa is what you use to make tortillas, what you make to use tamales, pupusas, and that's what produces arepas, for instance, a different kind of corn cake. And I created a method by which people can make masa the old-fashioned way, but also make it in a food processor.
1: What are some of the recipes in the book that would do well in soup and stew season? Is there, you know, what are the seasonal ones that you're particularly excited to cook?
2: Okay, so one of them would be the sancocho from Panama. It's a sancocho de domingo. It's a chicken soup, but it's, it's so simple to make. You sweat the chicken in a pot with some onion. And the green, long-serrated culantro, which is not the same as cilantro. And it's not the same because cilantro, when you cook, it goes black. And this one remains vibrantly green. And then you just cook your chicken there, add some water. And at the end of the cooking time, you add nyame, which is the true African yam. It creates this velvety broth with chicken. Another one would be guatemalán pepian. That is a stew. That is one that actually originates... In Mayan time period in the ancient times, but that gets added ingredients from Africans like sesame seeds, for instance, the Spanish, the beef, for instance, and it's a stew made with beef short ribs and it's cooked in a sort of mole sauce, which we call recados in Guatemala, which is a mixture of chiles and tomatoes and green tomatoes and seeds without much heat at all. But you cook it in a stew, you add some broth to it, you add vegetables like um, potatoes and green beans and carrots to it.
1: God, that sounds amazing.
2: In the Dominican Republic, they have a wonderful dish called pastelón, which is a lasagna in terms, made with plantains instead of pasta. So it's sweet plantain layers uh, with meat in between and cheese. And it's like cutting into a lasagna, but it's warm and sweet and savory and warm. It's just one of those dishes that you can't stop eating.
1: Peru has come up a few times. Yes. I visited for the first time earlier this year. I went to the Amazon. Oh, wow. Which was, I mean, like, it's it's a total understatement to say it was extraordinary. It was, you know, the most magical, astonishing trip of my life. And I got to try so many roots and other ingredients that are native to the Amazon and often don't travel out of the Amazon. Yes. In contrast, next year, I'm going to Lima for the first time. Oh my goodness. How should I tackle my trip in Lima? I've got, I'm going to have about, I'm going to a wedding in Cusco. So I'm going to have about five days in Lima beforehand. What should my game plan be for eating in Lima?
2: Well, I think You definitely have to go try some of the trendy restaurants so you can see what the novel chefs are making. Uh, Definitely have to go to Gastón Acurio's place also because he has been, I think, the greatest ambassador to Peruvian food. But don't miss the markets. Don't miss the the museums such as the Potato Museum because you'll see all the history. Wait,
1: tell me about the Potato Museum.
2: (laughs) There's a Potato Museum where you can actually go and see all the 3,000 kinds of potatoes and the history and the colors and everything in the museum. It's just fascinating.
1: What is your favorite dish out of the book to cook and which is your favorite one to eat? Because they could be two different things.
2: That is like asking me who is my favorite child. And it's it's very, (laughs) very difficult. I can tell you that for me, the recipes that mean the most are those that I got from my grandmother. And that would be the case for any Latin American who would find any comforting dish in the book that reminds them of something they've had in their past. And that is because food has the power. And I don't think there's any other creative outlet that does the same the power to bring somebody back or a moment back in time, even when they're long gone. We can look at a painting and see a landscape and the way that it was for a moment in time in that painter's eyes, but we cannot bring back the feeling, the love, the, in, in so many captions and the person almost back. It's almost as if you have that person sitting next to you. So for me, it's the comfort dishes, the book that mean the most when I eat them. Uh, now, cooking for it, there are some that are I love to cook them and serve them because they're very shocking to people when they try them and they think they're so gourmet and they're so easy to make. One of them is the Chilean pasta con palta, which is a an avocado sauce that you toss with linguini. and it looks like pesto. It looks, it, it feels in your tongue like an alfredo creamy sauce and it's made with avocados. It's just amazing. And people think avocado and pasta, but it goes great and it's traditional. Or another one that I love is the Peruvian causa. Causa is a layered potato salad because it looks like you had an artist put it together by the way you layer it. And it's the easiest thing to do. All you need is a tuna can open in both directions, you know, and just layer the salad through a can and then lift the can off. And you've got a beautiful layered salad and people just think it's, wow, fantastic. So those are two things that I like to cook for show, but they're super easy, super inexpensive. Um, the ingredients, you find them anywhere. And they're just fun and they start really good conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've made me
1: so excited for my trip to Peru next year. Um, I
2: want to come with you because I missed mine. Oh my god, I'm going
1: to eat so <laughs> well. But this has been such a pleasure. Thank you. So thank you so much. Next week, The Mystery of the Ocean Floor, a mammoth mapping project Submersibles, shipwrecks, and more. I'm Lale Arakoglu, and you can find me on Instagram at Lale Hannah. Our engineer is Jake Loomis. The show's mixed by Amar Lal. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. See you next week.